Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. Hello, and welcome to today's episode, all about airline loyalty programs, their role, positioning, and potential for even greater profits which still seem to have plenty of room for growth. I'm joined for an interesting discussion by Mark Ross-Smith, a well-known airline loyalty thought leader now based in Malaysia. Mark is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Status Match, as well as the founder and editor of TravelDataDaily.com. I hope you enjoy listening to our discussion about some innovative ideas to drive customer loyalty, learning from both the gaming industry as well as other strategies that have been adopted by other leading airlines with great success. So, Mark, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Hey, Paula. Fabulous to be with you. Yes, fabulous to have you here, Mark. You are a big name, particularly in the airline loyalty industry. So some wonderfully provocative uh, thinking on your part, which I'm looking forward to discussing with you today. So before we get into all about airline loyalty kind of conversations, first of all, of course, I want to ask you about your personal favorite loyalty program. My personal favorite loyalty program is a computer game. It's called League of Legends. It's one of the world's most popular PC video games. It's on the PC platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, there's more than 4 billion hours a month people play this game. It's been around for about 10 years or so. The wow. company that runs it has been posting profits between 1.5 and 2 billion USD annually from the computer game. And if we think about loyalty, you know, we gamification as a word always comes up, yeah? And, yeah. you know, where does that come from? It comes from games, you Ooh. know? So, yeah. The, this computer game, I'm maybe addicted is the wrong word here, but highly engaged. And, you know, it, it's got all the elements of a traditional program. There's tiers. You work your way up through the tiers based on different skill level, how long you play the game. It's got virtual currency and points within the game. In fact, it's got multiple. This game has multiple virtual currencies that can unlock different characters and um, mm. ways to enhance the game experience. Mm-hmm. And there's a community aspect as well. You know, so you can play with your friends, you can meet new people as well. So it's kind of, it checks all the boxes in terms of mm. uh, engagement and what a loyalty program could be. So uh, for me, th- th- I'm very loyal, maybe addicted. Is, yeah. Sure. But, um, but high, definitely highly engaged. And, and in fact, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from video games to apply into other non-video game loyalty programs. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we will definitely explore that. And yeah, definitely, I think a very exciting, interesting space, Mark, because, you know, for me as a non-gamer, I kind of wish I was for exactly the reasons that you've said. So first of all, to find something that is so engaging, um, you know, to to literally enjoy spending time with. Um, I'm sure there's parameters now that uh, the family have to put around making sure it doesn't become too addictive. But absolutely, I think it's an extraordinary uh, concept. And I, I suppose I first respected games when the likes of Candy Crush came out. So 
you know, I certainly wouldn't be the traditional gaming profile. I think it's traditionally assumed that it's a male demographic. But what Candy Crush, for example, definitely proved is that there are, you know, all sorts of people that can engage with games. So what I'm hearing actually, Mark, is perhaps there's a need for loyalty professionals listening to our show and our conversation today to officially take up gaming as um, some professional research. I can hear the cheers already, Paul. <laughs> I can see everyone downloading games and, oh, we're doing work today. We're just playing games. Totally, totally. Um, but actually, th- there is another good example, Mark, which just came to mind. So I wrote an article actually inspired by the um, the Cannes Lions Festival of Creativity. I hope I have the, the name correct, but it literally follows the, the Cannes Film Festival. And it's uh, maybe top of my wish list as a professional destination I want to get to at some point. But KFC, which is not a brand I would typically associate with loyalty or I don't consume their products, for example. I don't think I've ever been in a KFC restaurant, for example. But in China, KFC built their entire loyalty strategy based on gamification and targeting the gaming community. So I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. But I think exactly what you're saying, Mark, is there is huge inspiration available within that entire business model um, with extraordinary numbers like you've just quoted from League of Legends, for example, that we can all take learnings from. Gaming is really big. You know, we talk hear a lot about like meta and the metaverse these days, right? This immersive gaming type experience that is coming into our world. This is this stuff's already been, it's been around for a long time already. You might remember, you know, Second Life, like yeah. 10, 15 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Since then, you got things like World of Warcraft that come in. They they are these immersive gaming experiences. Yeah. And they're they're created in a way to keep you engaged, to keep you in the game. Right. Yeah. The, the the product design people behind this are really, really smart. Yeah. And to your point in KFC in China, especially in, in Southeast like Korea, South Korea is actually very interesting. There's dedicated TV channels that just stream gaming, like wow. on TV. You can just tune into it and watch it, you know. Yeah. Look at uh, Twitch, you know, the, the video game streaming platform. Mm. Uh, I think it was Amazon, Amazon that bought it, a billion dollars or something pretty big. Um, it, it, people are making careers just streaming video games. People are just watching you play a video game. You can make yeah. a career out of these days, right? Wow. And which means the game behind it has to be interesting enough for people, A, to want to watch it, uh, yeah. almost like a sport yeah. and be interesting enough to play it. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what better way to keep people playing a game than have loyalty elements in that, you know, mm-hmm. tears, currency, achievements, um, these, these sorts of things. Yeah. So there's, there's a, definitely a lot that the non-gaming world can learn from the gaming world. Totally. And the other point that's coming to mind as well, Mark, is um, I'm very passionate about the role of content as a tool to drive loyalty. Um, Clearly, I'm a content producer in a specific format, but I think I mentioned to you off air that I did meet um, a couple, actually a husband and wife team a couple of years ago at the Web Summit, big technology conference, and they're working with World of Warcraft The husband composes music for them and the wife is the conductor of the orchestra. And I mean, 80 man woman orchestra creating and performing. For example, they performed with the Philharmonic Orchestra here in Qatar. But the role of music to drive loyalty 
as a form of content, clearly very emotional, perhaps better understood. But that blew my mind as another thing that, again, when we talk about our, you know, careers in telco and careers in airline, nobody's really talking about content and certainly not something as dramatic to me as music as a way to build emotional loyalty with their members. Totally. Music is is ultra powerful. Uh, think about putting my airline hat on for a sec. Think yeah. about when you board an aircraft, airlines have got boarding music, you yeah. know, and they often go for 10, 15 minutes. And they're, they're beautiful pieces. Yeah. They're very uplifting. They make you feel good, mm. which is kind of what you want when you're boarding the aircraft. You want to feel good about the journey ahead. Yeah. Not, not some kind of rock music. And like, oh, what's you want something <laughs> calming to the ears, that right tone. Yeah. Uh, you know, video games, music, um, uh, movies, it, it, it flows over into these things. Um, highly underrated, I think. I, music is yeah. um, used in the right way to invoke these emotions when you're playing a game. Because if you're, if you're doing something, whatever mm. task it is, and there's some emotional, highly charged emotional element subconsciously or not that sort of comes in, yeah. what happens is you subconsciously link the thing, the act that you're doing, yeah. right, whatever that is, maybe mm-hmm. you're on a plane, maybe playing a game or movie, with with uh, with that music and it it, t- it creates like a bond in mm. in your memory and you start to have these same feel it's the same feelings as love you mm. start falling in love with it wow okay well we're going in a whole other direction there so uh so good insights mark thank you for for bringing that to our attention so listen i was reading lots of your articles obviously you've been working in airline loyalty now for how many years would you say mark actually it's a long time huh uh, look, officially, I want to say about seven, unofficially okay. 20. Okay. Okay. Consumer first and uh, consultant later, huh? Correct. Came yeah. in from being a legit, real frequent flyer myself um, mm-hmm. with a bunch of airlines, um, having another business. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I at some point sold that business and I thought, you know, I had no job at that point, just sold a company. Like, what am I going to do next? Mm. Uh, I thought, you know, I really want to get into this airline loyalty stuff. It's kind of cool. Uh, mm. So that's that's the official part of my career when I really started that journey into how do I how do I get into this? You know, being yeah. someone that had already had career doing something else. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great perspective, Mark, and definitely one I think that we need to explore a lot more to, I suppose, put ourselves in the shoes of customers and really understand the pain points that um, the passengers experience. And there's loads around that and lots of reasons actually why that doesn't currently happen within the airline loyalty industry, I guess, because, you know, what all of us who've worked in airline loyalty know is that as soon as you join the business, uh, you do get immediate access to business class, for example, for free, of course, to fly around and do whatever you need to do within the airline. So it's almost like for me, I mean, I was what, 25 years of age when I was put into that wonderful position. So yes, I definitely didn't have the same kind of pain points that I have now. For example, as somebody who aspires to fly in business class, finds it you know, hard to justify the pricing. And yet I do really value that experience. Yeah, you, you, you're right. If you speak to someone who works on an airline, typically you'll hear the conversation will go to something like this. Oh, I'm going to Spain for the weekend or I'm going to Singapore for the weekend. I'm just jumping on a plane. There's some seats available. Yeah. And the, there's a pretty large disconnect between what non-airline employees go through. It's a, 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 think of like your typical passenger. 
and mm-hmm. a, an airline staff member, right? So airline staff are paying, you know, between what, 50, 90% off the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. So suddenly they're not shelling that 20 grand to fly halfway around the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so what that, what that means is there's a different experience that they have with mm-hmm. the product versus normal travelers, mm-hmm. right? So firstly, there's the, the amount that they're paying and the, also the way that they book that, right? They're booking it through a staff, staff travel portal. There's no mm-hmm. upsells. There's no pop-ups. There's no, hey, mm-hmm. click here, get the credit card and say $300 on your flight. Mm-hmm. If they don't take the flight, they can get a refund if mm-hmm. they've even been charged for that flight. They get a refund very quickly, which is not mm-hmm. the experience of most people. You know, <laughs> they, check, they check in at different counters at the airport, mm-hmm. typically not as long a lines, mm-hmm. um, different baggage allowances, different ticket running rules. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these people are just happy to get on the flight at the end of the day, whereas versus, you know, you and me and millions of other travelers, we, we pay some pretty big bucks to get on these tickets to fly at specific times and we expect to fly at certain times. Mm. And, you know, if, if, if something doesn't go right and we've paid 10, 20,000 bucks for the ticket, um, our expectation is the airline's going to do something for us, whereas mm. a staff member doesn't have that experience because what they pay and their expectations are totally different. Um, Another good example on this is um, the credit cards, right, in in loyalty programs. So in airline loyalty generates huge cash flow from these co-brand credit cards. Mm -hmm. And if you work in an airline, why would you need to have a co-brand credit card? Because you already get cheap flights. Sure. You know, you don't need to save up these miles for one, two, three years to, you know, fly your family to Disneyland for a couple of weeks. Mm. You just you just look at what flights have availability, you jump on them, cool, we're going. Mm. And so what, what it means is most people, when I say most, I mean 99.9% of people on airline don't have the Cobra and credit card because they just don't need it, right? Sure, yeah. And so there's, there's probably a good argument. Now, what, what would happen if they were forced to get the card or what would happen if you took away staff travel as a benefit, would they then get the credit card? And if they did, how would that change your behavior within an airline? Mm-hmm. And then what would that look like reflected back into the loyalty program? Mm-hmm. How would they then want to solve their own problems and their own challenges to make the program better for the millions of travelers that go through these pain points every single day? Yeah. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, obviously there is a lot of, you know, uh, money, I guess, invested in market research with top customers. And I know, for example, you were one of Qantas's top frequent flyers and you got to spend a lot of time with management and they wined and dined you by all accounts and and really took care of you. And I guess as part of that um, experiential side of being a frequent flyer, you got to express your views. I'm sure they were very curious as to your experiences. So do you think that is one way, um, I suppose, to continue investing in getting those insights of exactly those pain points for, for real-life customers? Qantas treated me very well over the years, I must say. Shout out to Qantas if you're listening. Um, a lot of fantastic experiences. And I, what it felt like for me is they they wanted to have those conversations. You know, a lot of airlines just kind of close those channels off. It's like, oh, these pesky travelers again. How dare these VIP, these privileged people complain <laughs> about not getting a hot meal? How They're only spending 100,000 years. How dare they, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of that. And I, I didn't get that sense with, with Qantas. They generally wanted to engage with their top customers, learn more about what drives them, what doesn't drive them. Mm-hmm. Because if someone's spending a bunch of cash with you, 
yeah. often it's easier to get them to spend even more, right? Yeah. And if you can tweak and do a few different things, mm-hmm. uh, why not? Uh, at the time, this was nearly 10 years ago, the airline was introducing a new super tier. So above a, like a typical platinum tier, like a super VIP tier. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of um, noise around this new tier and, you know, what it's going to look like and the benefits. So, you know, what better way to figure out what benefits you'll put into a new tier than to talk to the people that would qualify for it. Sure. Right. Yeah. And because, and if you engage that audience, yeah, uh, people that might qualify for it, what happens is you, it's a, it's, it's a giant advertisement basically saying, mm. Hey, if you do this, you're going to get there. Mm. You're, you're so close already. And what happens is there's this, there's this sort of spending up element where you go a bunch of people that w- would have been close to getting it. They, they've been involved in this, this new tier into creation in some very small way. Yeah. It gets, it gets announced and like, I need to get there. And they, yeah. they're already spending a lot. They can spend more and they do. Yeah. And so with yeah. airlines, you know, when they launch new tiers, yeah, new higher tiers, this is, mm. um, there's a, a lot of people that will just spend up totally unnecessarily to get yeah. into that tier. And yeah. you could almost justify creating yeah. the new tier, all the costs and all the staff and all the branding, all the, all the everything around it. You could justify it purely by the people they're going to spend up in the first month or two to get into that tier. Totally, totally. And I think the key words you mentioned there, Mark, is these are people who can spend more. And, you know, particularly, I think, again, just from reading some of your your articles, there's there's the whole piece around, for example, well, obviously taking more flights and maybe being able to justify that. Um, I do know people, you know, who have flown halfway around the world, um, you know, without really needing to, as in it was a business trip that could have been done on Zoom, but actually had that kind of same kind of milestone focus about being determined to get to the next tier and the company was paying. So why not? So that definitely does happen um, for people who can spend more. But what I also love is this concept of share of wallet, um, because I really believe that, you know, the loyalty programs I've been involved with, you know, we spent an awful lot of time, you know, trying to obviously focus on driving profitable behavior change and looking at, oh, you know, this segment did that and we were able to, you know, drive this upsell or cross sell. And we really only looked at or had access to behavior within our own business. And it never even occurred to me, to be honest, again, it's probably one of the reasons why I do this show is like these big ideas about, oh, my God, actually, they're, of course, spending with other airlines in this situation probably doesn't happen so much in telecommunications. Um, But I think there is a massive opportunity. And I'm keen to understand, Mark, whether you think in most cases at the moment, the airlines you're talking to do they have a good understanding of their share of wallet? And if they don't, I guess, what can they do to get that visibility? Because there is a great article, we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes as well about, you know, just showing, you know, two different people, obviously, with very different profiles. Maybe one is considered loyal because they're flying you know, so many times with the airline and increasing the number of flights, but actually then another passenger who is actually only giving you 50% of their travel. So um, they're actually not being loyal, even if they're seen to be and flying more with you, if they're still flying more with your competitors. It's exactly right. So in your example, the person that's only giving you 50% of business to the airline, they might be a platinum type member and they're the highest tier you can get. They're seen as a great customer. But yeah. you don't, what you don't know is they've got 100 fights with the, when you're competing airlines that they're doing every year over there, spending twice as much. 
Mm. And so in terms of share of wallet or percentage of real loyalty, Mm. it would be, you know, less than 50%. Whereas, you know, um, you got another passenger twice a year, they go visit grandma and 100% of their share of wallet is on your airline. They're very loyal. They're actually a better customer in terms of loyalty to the airline brand. Yeah. And so there's this whole thing about how do you, one, how do you track share of wallet, which I consider one of the golden metrics for airline loyalty. These are one of the top three things you need to be tracking. Yeah. Uh, especially on your most valuable customers, because if one of your most valuable customers starts flying with a competitor, yeah, chances are they're going to do more and more and more and more of it, even if you don't see their activity with your airline go down. Mm. So that, that's a real risk. And so yeah. you need to track it in the background. So the next question is, how do you, how do you, how do you measure this stuff? And there's a, there's a bunch of different ways. Nothing is 100%. Um, there's, there's a bunch of airlines that do a pretty good job of this today, especially mm-hmm. in North America, mm-hmm. mostly using credit card spend data. Okay. Uh, so what that is, you know, they know what credit card you have on file. Mm-hmm. And in, in the USA, the, yeah. there's very Deep unique opportunities to <laughs> leverage data insights. Totally, totally. <laughs> and... And they can, you know, get an idea of where else you're spending, right? So you're spending on airline A, airline B, C, et cetera. Um, actually, opportunities for customers to have a bit of fun with that. You know, you could just for fun, you know, put all your competitor airlines spend on one credit card and all airlines spend on another credit card just to play with so they think they're not getting any of your spend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you get so all the credit card is, Yeah. Credit card is one. The, the one that the, probably the one I find most interesting is telco data. So airlines using telco location data. So there's a mm. telco is a thing called HLR. It's a home location registrar. And what that does is your mobile phone, every second, it's pinging the cell towers around you saying, I'm over here, I'm over here, I'm over here. And that's how they they route yeah. phone calls right? Yeah. to say, you know, we're going to route to this tower. Um, in some countries, you can, as a third party, you can, you can access this data. And mm. so I could, you know, maybe not in your case, but I could type in, you know, Paul's yeah. phone number and say... Paula is in this city right now. She's roaming on this network. Her home network is blah, blah, telco. Mm-hmm. And so if you travel overseas, suddenly if I'm, if I'm doing a lookup on your number, I can see when you're traveling. Even wow. if I have no insight at all to any of your flight activity, any of your credit card data, credit card data I can still see, you know, Paula's she's, today, she's in Dubai and I ping her again tomorrow. And, oh, she's in Singapore. Oh, and then she's in Australia. And then she's in Japan. And I correlate that back to the flight history at my airline. Did did Paula fly by airline or an alliance or a partner to mm-hmm. get there? If no, then, well, we're missing out on something. And if yes, then great. You know, we've, we've got what we think to might be 100% share of wallet. Mm-hmm. And so that, armed with that data, you can then uh, plug that into your CRM system and treat mm-hmm. people differently depending on their share of wallet rather than what status tier they are. Totally. And are there many countries that that data is available, Mark, in your experience? Because, uh, you know, privacy concerns are so huge right now. I can't imagine this is, is possible in Europe. I could be wrong. But uh, is this something that, that you know is possible in, in certain countries around the world? I want to say about 50% of countries you can. Wow. Um, I think it's about, okay. about that. Uh, laws definitely have changed in yeah. certain markets over the years, but this um, HLR data is not a new thing. It's been around for at least 20 years. And I guess there's a way to uh, perhaps build it um, in a way that could be GDP, pardon me, 
GDPR compliance, um, for example, within Europe, you know, with permission, if the um, the telco customer is a member of a telco loyalty program and does give permission for that data to be shared, then I'm guessing that would be uh, certainly a way that could be done with permission and compliance on both sides. Yeah, some some telcos, telcos make a lot of money selling data as well. So there's tel- telcos selling data directly to a company and then on the other side there's there's mm. like aggregators that pick up as much data as they can through other sources. Yeah. Um, it's it, I don't know how much privacy we really have these days. That's um, true. Yeah. Know, yeah. I, I, my, my view is, you know, you, you either get over it or you don't. <laughs> if you yeah. don't get over it, you kind, of, you kind of have to remove yourself from social media and, and a lot of life. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you just get over it, protect what you can, um, mm. you know, and then just sort of manage yourself like that. But I guess from a company perspective, there's a lot of opportunities to tap into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely one I really like, Mark, this idea of the golden metric and understanding the share of wallet from an airline perspective, because as I said, I think we're so focused on internally understanding the behavior and focusing on improving that, that sometimes we don't look beyond our own four walls and definitely something I think is super interesting to explore. The other big one that I really love, I suppose, very topical at the moment is the value of airline loyalty programs um, compared with the airline themselves. And I know this is one that uh, certainly you posted on, you know, just recently, for example. And the example that I saw that you were, were commenting on, and I was interested actually in some of the comments that came through from the industry but the particular example was the LL, Frequent Flyer uh, Program Valuation, a program called MatMid. I didn't know it and you named it for me. But LL's Frequent Flyer Program has just basically been essentially valued um, at 500 million US dollars. But the airline itself is only valued at 180 million dollars. So it seems that the loyalty program is worth, on paper, at least almost triple the valuation of the airline. Yep. It's <laughs> pretty typical, pretty typical most airlines. Um, I can hear the haters now. Yeah. Um, you know, the last two airline loyalty programs have always been most, especially legacy carriers, been pretty profitable for the longest time. Uh, and the, 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 the revenue is mostly generated from the co-brand credit cards and transferring points and miles from banks into the, into the program, mm. a, a, a lot on that. So that's where the valuations come from is from the cash flow from, from mm. that in, in, in North America, it's saved the, arguably the airline yeah. industry because the airlines yeah. are able to leverage government loans based on the valuation of the loyalty program. Mm. Cause the airlines had already mortgaged to the Hills, everything else. They had nothing left to mortgage. Go, oh, what is loyalty program thing? We got, Oh, what do you know? It's worth more than the airline itself. Yeah, you know, American Airlines very famously hasn't really uh, operationally hasn't posted a profit for many many years, mm. uh, and yet yet as a company as a group it's you know billion dollar profits every year, and that's underpinned by the advantage loyalty business. Yeah, and you know there's a lot of other folks commenting on the same thing as American Airlines that they're, they're not really an airline they're a marketing company that has a flying metal tubes division you know they (laughs) that that they're a marketing tech company which kind of brings the next question you know in a lot of airlines the the loyalty role the most senior loyalty role is like head of loyalty or vp of loyalty something like that you know why isn't it why isn't it a c-level role 
why isn't it a seagull of loyalty? Some airlines do, but yeah. why isn't it add more? And then more importantly, why is why is loyalty not represented on the board, mm. right? Proportionally to the value it brings to the business, which arguably is more than the airline. Yeah. Right? So why isn't the board made up of more marketing, branding, loyalty, like these kind of people? Because yeah. that's where the money is. The money for a lot of airlines is not in selling tickets and flying people around the world. Mm. That business, flying people, is needed to support their financial services business, aka the loyalty program. Yeah. And so why not why not put more focus into loyalty? Mm. Because that's where the that's where that's where all the enterprise value is. That's where the profitability mm. is. That's where the interest from investors is. Is this thing that has sustainable revenues for the last twenty years? It's very stable, even through you know, 2008, the economic downturns through 9-11, even, even through the pandemic, the worst time arguably in commercial aviation in history yeah. and airline loyalty programs are still posting profits. What does that tell you? <laughs> well, I thought you articulated it very well, Mark, when, you know, and again, in another of your articles, you basically, um, you know, suggested that it's not the situation anymore. In fact, that airlines have loyalty programs, but in fact, loyalty programs have airlines. And I do think if there was, you know, that dramatic a shift in the thinking, again, to your point at the C-suite, if it's actually first and foremost a loyalty business that obviously requires aircraft to deliver the product, I think there'd be a fundamental shift in the level of respect that the loyalty program gets, of course, because actually it is then the business rather than the flying metal tubes division that you talk about. Just on LL for a second, you know, the loyalty program valued at 500 million. That's today today's value right imagine yeah. if and then, and then they're not the biggest airline in the world you know imagine if they grew some of those the right metrics that 500 million is why couldn't it be 10 times that yeah. you know for yeah. an airline to to jump up 10 times in their, their market cap on the market right mm. that's unheard of right sure. how many how many aircraft do you need to buy how many mm. pilots do you need to employ how many routes do you need to fly like how much does that cost to do all that, to drive up 10 times or 10x versus how much would it cost investment into loyalty to drive it 10x, yeah. right? Which is, again, if it's worth two and a half times, nearly three times the airline's value, you're yeah. much better putting your resources into loyalty than yeah. into pilots, fuel, network, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, you, you need the airline, don't get me wrong. Of course. Or actually, that's the other way around. The airline needs the financial services part of yeah. AK, the loyalty program. But I think it's a good point, Mark, because what I'm hearing is, you know, again, to go back to your um, favorite uh, example as, as a frequent flyer with Qantas, what I do think that they have done extraordinarily well, of course, is this focus on loyalty means that they go out and invest their time and efforts in essentially selling the loyalty currency. And the revenue then that comes through that, as we've said, requires the airline to fulfill it. But I think that mindset of we're in the loyalty business, we have aircraft and, and you know, uh, routes to, to fly, of course, to, uh, to delight our customers. But actually, I think your focus, as you said, rather than the investment investment on the aircraft and that hugely expensive tiny margin airline business suddenly goes into uh, becoming you know potentially a, an explosive community with extraordinary revenues um, across you know much more like coalition style loyalty I guess exactly uh, you know there's 57 new startup airlines that I've seen come up pop up in the last year wow in, in the world and I haven't seen many that actually have a decent loyalty proposition or, or if any loyalty proposition at all. That kind of blows my mind. 
considering yeah. how value the world has seen and proven how valuable loyalty is. And it just doesn't appear that many are going in that direction in terms of being a loyalty first company, they're being an airline first company. Mm. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. To your point on coalition, this is really interesting because, you know, if you're, if you've got a lot of options to earn points through everyday spend through just normal life living, you go to the supermarket, you earn some points, you telco bill, you earn some points. If, if you go mm. points through all these different partners, what happens is um, subconsciously, you know, you, you go, you earn your 50 points from the supermarket, you're collecting them. Mm. Uh, when you go to fly, what happens? You go, well, you know, I've been collecting all these blah, blah, airline miles. Um, that's the first thing I'm going to choose or mm. at least look for a flight for, right? So it's, it, it kind of acts like a, a quasi-brand lock-in mechanism, right? Where you're making the airline or the loyalty program money through an, the supermarket buying miles on your behalf and going to account, great. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then what happens is when you're going to fly, you're like, oh, I'm going to fly that airline because I've got some miles there. It might not be the cheapest airline. Mm-hmm. They might not be the most direct. They might not have the best product. But, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I've got some miles there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm loyal to them. I like it. I'll fly mm-hmm. with them. And so what it does is it... it it, it funnels people into specific brands versus the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so collecting miles at, you know, a supermarket or just your everyday spend is, mm-hmm. yes, there's the financial element for the loyalty program on them selling points and miles. Great. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's also the, um, you know, the, the art of loyalty side where it's, um, it's, it's a softer approach. It's, it's the schmoozing you to, to please fly us next time. It's putting that brand front of mind. Mm. Um, so that when you are ready to fly and that Mm. might not be for one or two or three or four, whenever it is, but when you are, Mm. the chances of you going to that brand's website is is so much higher because you've been collecting the currency versus if you weren't collecting the currency. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing as well, Mark, and I, I know your expertise is very much in the vertical of airline, and I'm going to ask you a question about everyone except airline. Um, but what I hear coming through, and again, when I was you know, running loyalty programs, and again, in the telco sector, which I know you, you worked in as well, to me, there was a lot of this kind of points fatigue you know, there was a lot of this issue, which is exactly, again, what coalitions are designed to address. And I think points fatigue exists in probably every single sector, except airlines, because the level of aspiration and the joy of travel, even if it's to gift travel or whatever, I don't think there's points fatigue in my experience and and certainly as a consumer. So what I guess my question is, is, We have a huge audience, of course, listening. You know, some of them are definitely airline loyalty people. Plenty of them are not. So we have people in quick service restaurants and retail and all these other sectors, utilities, for example, where we're all looking for that unique selling point. So if you were to go into a telco now, let's say as a loyalty manager, and you maybe have an existing program or not, I guess you do have an opportunity to look to the, you know, the best airline with the best loyalty proposition in that market. And again, I don't know Malaysia very well, for example, where you're based, but like, what would be your advice or or your approach? Do you think, would you build your own loyalty program with your own points and that challenge that we've talked about in terms of point fatigue? Or would you go to the the airline and say, hey, can we just uh, buy points from you guys? And you know, is, you know, what's the decision-making criteria, would you say, 
because I guess there's a lot of trade-offs when you go with the, you know, just buy them to somebody else. I mean, they're going to be more expensive, for example. The data and insights may be not as good. But yeah, I just think it's a very interesting, interesting idea because it is so difficult to build a compelling loyalty program as a standalone business. Have a whole nother podcast just on this topic, I think, Paula. Sure. Um, <laughs> Sorry the, for the long question. <laughs> the, I, I think it, the answer really depends on maybe the size of the company looking to build out their loyalty proposition, uh, whether they partner with an airline or buy those that currency or not. Mm. If we look at why airline currency is interesting and aspirational, um, it, it all comes down to airlines, when you fly, you're on a plane for an hour, two, three, 12, 15, you know, mm-hmm. you're in that, that travel ecosystem for hours and hours at a time. Mm. And so you're seeing the brand, the seat back and you know, trade meals come out, you see the brand everywhere. You're just immersed in it, totally mm. immersed for long periods of time. Mm. Whereas when you walk into Starbucks, it's two minutes and you're out. Sure. Right. So that's why also people are more interested in the airline just because they're more passionate, just because they're putting more of their attention in it because they're, mm-hmm. they're living in that plane for 12 hours on the flight. Yeah. Right? And so for an external business that is looking to, you know, do we create our own currency or do we leverage off the airline currency? The airline currency has this pre-trained audience on the value of, of their currency. And airlines are not stupid. They will charge you a premium to buy those miles if you're another business, right? Sure. But you know what? It's probably worth it for the other business, especially if you're a small company. Yeah. Because you're then, you're, you're then tapping into this other customer base yeah. They they know the value of these points. It's yeah. a big brand. So presumably if it's a, you know, you're kind of trading up in terms of brand. So that's good for the cup for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to think about it as much. And then, you know, if you've got the right ec- economics and partnership agreement in place, you know, maybe the airline's going to help promote your business. Um, yeah. And actually what I've, what I've found, and this is a really hard thing for some companies to grasp, a lot of the power in these kind of relationships is, Yes, there's power in the airline promoting your product when you're a partner. But yeah. actually, if you're if you're the other brand, you promote the fact that you're a partner of that airline brand. Mm-hmm. That that is actually hugely powerful, hugely mag- magical. Yeah. Um, because you know your own customers better than the airline knows your customers. Yeah. yeah. So you you promote in the channels that that you know best, and then suddenly you're unlocking the loyalty members at the airline to sort of come into mm. your business. So there's a, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to your question, I think it depends uh, okay. a lot on where, where you want to go. That <laughs> yeah. doesn't really help anyone listening. <laughs> but there's obviously tremendous value in, in our loyalty currency. And that's been a proven model for at least the last two decades. Yeah. But I really like the words you used, Mark, which is pre-trained. Because again, to go back to my own example and my own experience, essentially, no matter how much time, effort, money and communications we spent, it always felt like never more than, I'm going to say 35% of the customer base really understood our telco loyalty program. Like we never really appreciated the depth of the challenge to educate and train the customer on what our currency was, what the value was, what the benefits was. So I think you're absolutely right. That idea that, you know, to to essentially partner and buy from another pre-trained loyalty base, I think there's a huge benefit there to a partner brand that, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about before. Is this another element? Do do you want more 35 or 40% of people engaged in the loyalty product? Because maybe that's all you need. Like for an airline, if someone, for example, people have a lead status in airline, like a silver, gold, platinum type status. Sure. This typically represents 
two, three, five percent, maybe five, maybe yeah, five percent of the member base in a loyalty program. Though mm. that, that small percentage of, of loyalty members represents about 30% of revenue to the airline, a total ticket spend at an airline. Mm. Right. So if you're looking at which which bases within your loyalty program, like which customer segments you could influence the most, right? Because the loyalty program is all about influencing people to do stuff to take certain actions, right? So you can drive mm. whatever metric you want from that audience. Mm. And you know, an example of airlines, if you've got like a silver or gold status, the chances of you being able to afford and spend more on stuff is pretty high versus someone that doesn't have that. Right? Yeah. And it's easier to get these people to do stuff. So hence, mm. there's tiers and points to influence that very small group of people because when you influence them, mm. it, it magnifies the revenue that you can you can you can achieve at it versus that it would be, it would cost a lot more to get those kind of gains out of the non-status people, mm. right? So you focus on the people with status because you could just do a lot more with it. It's a lot easier. So, you know, in telco world, maybe it's about uh, looking at who has the ability to spend more, again, share wallet, mm. um, you know, and, and, and then targeting them with, with specific things or specific currency and seeing how that, how that drives outcomes. Mm. Um, you know, telco and airlines have a pretty good relationship together um, because they both make money out of roving. <laughs> so, totally. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a bit of an audience overlap there. Um, I've seen airlines where they, they export the the loyalty members' phone numbers, for example. Uh, you know, send it to their favorite telco and say, you know, how many of these people have uh, are in your database? You know, we know they've traveled. You know, yeah. they've traveled. Where else have they traveled that we don't know about? It's, it's an interesting one. And they can sort of see the over overlap on the databases, and from there, you can make a pretty mm. educated decision on if you should partner with that telco as an as an from an airline perspective. This is yeah. Um, based on the audience overlap and how many more, mm. you know, people could we move the needle on all sorts of stuff. Mm, super interesting. Yeah. And I know another thing that you're, you're quite passionate about, Mark, is, you know, the fact that loyalty, you know, still has so much potential. Um, one that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of frequent flyer programs as media businesses. Um, and, you know, I, I know, for example, you know, obviously within financial services, as we've said, obviously they promote partners, but increasingly I'm seeing retailers, whether it's Walgreens, for example, in the US, where they're literally building an entire media business um, from their loyalty program. Um, so literally kind of leveraging those data insights and permissions. And I'm wondering if that's something that you hear happening in airlines or whether it's something you think is an opportunity for airline loyalty people. And I'm still a bit of this already. Uh, around the points and miles um, aspect of it. Some of it flows over into the in-flight magazines as well. There's mm -hmm. a little bit there. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally where this is going is, again, to the point on airline loyalty valuation, yeah. it's underpinned by miles. But if you go take a step back further, it, the miles represent high margin revenue, right? And so the more high margin revenue you can generate, whatever that looks like, sometimes mm -hmm. it's points and miles, sometimes mm -hmm. it's media. Sometimes yeah. it's selling an upsell kind of loyalty product. Maybe it's a subscription-based product for whatever that look, whatever that looks like. Mm. It's all high margin revenue because remember, airlines don't like margins on you know some of the seats pretty pretty yeah. disgusting. And so totally shocking, yeah. Whereas you know, in 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 loyalty, it can be with the right customer and the right mile that you sell it could be one hundred percent depending. 
Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, if you work on margins somewhere between 30 and 60%, that's pretty typical of most Mm -hmm. airline businesses. Mm -hmm. And that's more more like a media company or a tech company in terms Mm -hmm. of the type of cash it's generating. It's more aligned with that. And the market values those businesses differently. Mm. So creating a media company or a media arm to a loyalty business makes total sense because it's the same type of revenue. Mm. I like it. I like it. Wonderful. Um, well, I mean, so much there. I think the, um, I suppose the final big topic that I, I really liked, which I think we've alluded to already, but it's already, um, to me, I suppose, this idea about loyalty being at the C-suite. Um, you mentioned a couple, which I, I hadn't, I suppose, um, realized the specific examples where uh, loyalty experts, let's call them, and loyalty management people do sit at the C-suite level. So the examples you quoted is IAG, of course, with Avios, Qantas and Asia Mile. So I guess, do you think that this is a trend, that there is this level of um, increasing respect, I guess, for loyalty programs within the airline business where they are perhaps bringing them um, and promoting them up the chain? Or or what's your view? Because I think you mentioned to me off air that um, you have had questions from airline loyalty professionals who themselves realize that they're probably not well enough and they're not visible enough, let's say internally, maybe not positioned at a senior enough level. So I'm not sure what they can do, but yeah, just what's your view on, um, you know, loyalty at the C-suite? Loyalty is definitely a C-level role and should be at the boardroom, probably with a few seats, more than one, um, given the value that it represents to the group and the value that it can bring to the group if it's... um, prioritized after properly yeah exactly yeah um so there there is definitely more and more airlines moving this direction generally it's where the 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 setup is loyalty is a separate entity owned by the airline yeah so it's not it's not a division within the airline as such it's a loyalty co-limited type deal owned by the airline Hmm. Um, what that does is it frees up there's a bunch of benefits of doing this obviously you can um you've got a proper PL that's totally separate from the airline that mm-hmm. you're more accountable for or auditing that kind of stuff. And so you can leverage mm. uh, loans and all sorts of stuff based on that specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, brings proper structure, brings governance and all sorts of stuff that you kind of need to, to have behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more importantly, from my perspective, having worked in airline where loyalty is a division, mm-hmm. um, you, you move away from some of the bureaucracy and the politics within the airline structure and mm-hmm. you know how people talk about, you know, the airlines are very siloed visions, you know, no one talked to each other, you know, yeah. Yeah. My, my view is actually the opposite. Uh, why not double down on that? Why not just silo even more, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. to some degree, that's kind of what spinning spinning out, not spinning off, spinning out the, the loyalty proposition does because mm-hmm. then loyalty can just go do its own thing. It's not, doesn't have this burden of, you yeah. know, we have to run every decision by, networking and revenue management and da, 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 it just gets away from that if you're kind of free of the shackles of traditional airline nonsense that comes with it and just go mm. do your own thing and yeah. that's why we see most if not all airline loyalty programs that have sort of split out have done extremely well because they now they can just focus on what really matters yeah and we've seen tons of examples over the years where it sort of spun out one of the programs got bought back in actually a couple of them mm-hmm. sort of rain back in a bit to the airline mm-hmm. um but it's 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 really only good news there and it's good news for the airline as well 
because mm. suddenly you've got this loyalty program, goes out there, makes a bunch of cash. And then when the airline eventually runs out of money, they put their hand <laughs> up and say, hey, could you help us guys? Yeah. And so, oh, now loyalty, loyalty wasn't that important before, but oh, now it's just saved the company. It's, you know, it's prioritized. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely, it's definitely a C-level type role. I do get people all the time from inside airlines, you know, even simple, you know, hey, saw this article you wrote on da 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 da. Um, you know, we we showed um, you know, the CEO in one of our meetings, your article, that's what we referenced to try and drive this other thing that we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, I I like hearing these stories because I, you don't write these articles thinking this is ever gonna happen. And then when someone tells you, hey, this actually was brought up in one of our executive meetings, it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's good that it's it's being used to help you know, loyalty professionals with an airline do what is sometimes hard to articulate yeah. within an airline because, you know, you're in your job every day, you're just doing your thing and that's great. Yeah. Um, the, you know, there's only really a few different loyalty airline conferences in the world, you know, and it's been hard to get to some of them the last few years. So it's hard to talk to your peers about this stuff. And, you know, as an airline, you don't really have, you know, half a million bucks to engage one of the big consultant groups to do this kind of stuff for you. And so where do you go? Sure. Like you, you, you're limited on your options and suddenly you see, mm. you know, all these articles and thought leadership stuff online. It's like, well, hang on, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. You know, I'll, <laughs> I'll use that. Uh, and so I think that's that's helped um, a, a bunch of airlines at least strategically position themselves internally mm. um, to to leverage what the, the asset that they really have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's going to be a bit of a turning of the tide within airlines uh, especially as we come out of this, this, you know, global mess that we're in right now, mm. um, where loyalty, the, the big guys have shown the value to the world yeah. of their loyalty businesses mm-hmm. and everyone else is looking at it and going, how, how do we do that? How do we yeah. emulate that? And part of that, sadly, in some ways, I think means sort of deconstructing the airline management existing structure and rebuilding it in a way that is more aligned to the, va- the the value that loyalty brings to the airline. And what that means is mm. there's just more loyalty marketing branding type people and minds that have to come to the top. Well, I, you know, wholeheartedly agree. What can I say, Mark? Um, it's music to my ears. I think it's music to the ears of every loyalty professional who's listening because um, I do love the fact that despite the chaos and the craziness and the devastation the world has gone through, what I do love is the increasing opportunities for us in this business. Um, because again, it comes back to my core passion, which is it puts integrity and customers at the core of the business. Um, so I do think we have a unique opportunity in uh, loyalty marketing to uh, to serve the customers. And I really get great joy from that. I'm hearing that coming through as well from you, Mark. So listen, we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, I don't have any more questions for you, but I'm sure you have some parting notes or a favorite example or what um, thinking or ideas would you like to leave our audience with before we wrap up? Specifically for airlines, again, my favorite thing. Uh, I, I think is a, getting to know your customer and walking, or in this case, flying a mile in your customer's shoes uh, could go a long way. Yeah. Uh, you know, really experiencing the pain points and the joys of mm. what customers go through every day. And this is not just one flight a month, not, you know, do, do, do it more often, you know, really walk in their shoes 
Uh, see, see what makes them tick because what you'll inevitably find is not just things that can be solved, but there's new revenue opportunities that will come out of it. People will say, I wish I could do this. I wish I could not do this. I'd pay more for blah, blah, blah over here. Yeah. And so instead of cost cutting your way to success, which doesn't work, yeah. you can start building new products and building rapport with, with customers as well. And, you know, if customers start seeing more airline, especially management, people get involved on this, you know, on this level, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've personally seen it to be very, very successful. So I would, I would like to see more, mm. especially airline people, um, be customers of their own product. Yeah. Yeah, that and to, you know, circle back to our opening discussion, Mark, maybe we all need to go and, you know, do a stint in a gaming company and come back to our airlines with all of that insight and, you know, ideas about engaging our customers. And perhaps that's a, it's another way to, uh, to, to fix the, the situation. Exactly. So if you play League of Legends, make sure you look me up on the Oceana server. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Great. Listen, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Mark Ross-Smith, airline loyalty consultant with New World Loyalty and CEO, co-founder of statusmatch.com. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. This show is brought to you by the Australian Loyalty Association the leading organization for loyalty networking and education in Asia-Pacific. Their International Virtual Loyalty Conference will take place on the 25th of August 2022. Register now to hear global experts discuss current trends in loyalty marketing. There will be fantastic networking opportunities, questions and answers, gamification and great prizes to be won. Visit AustralianLoyaltyAssociation.com to find out more. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on Let'sTalkLoyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.